0: Twelve boys and their soccer coach found alive inside this cave in um, A mid-air disaster. He lost blood in both engines. He said. And the miners trapped half a mile below oh, the surface Bill's here. Another Bills player is down. Well, this is the last thing you want to see. How many are here? The water level starting to collide. Search and rescue was immediately launched. Over 1,000 people involved in the round-the-clock effort. They're not willing to rest until the last one of them is rescued. More help is on the way. They called your recovery remarkable. Just God, uh, just a blessing, you know. I'm just thankful he gave me a second chance. His recovery is nothing Um, short of miraculous. Everybody got off that plane. For tonight, they are free. Incredible news. We're coming, Okay. okay. Many people are coming. I am so grateful to be here during the rescue series because God has dug me out of more pits than I could possibly explain. I think I'm the chief sinner in this room. I'm also really thrilled to be back in this room because I love your house. I have deep, deep, deep respect for Pastor Kevin. I need to warn you, I'm a, I'm a spitter, but even for me, that would be quite, I can't help it. I have tried so hard. I don't drink before I try everything. I mean, I don't, Drink that kind of drink, but I mean, even like coffee. <laughs> I try to limit my, my water intake so I won't be such a spitter, but y'all are going to get a little bit wet. But I love uh, Pastor Kevin Queen and his staff here at Cross Point. I live about an hour from here, so I go to church down where um, they have gun racks and uh, not where they have skinny jeans. But I love Pastor Kevin and his team so much that a restraining order would probably be um, appropriate. And Annie Downs is a dear friend, uh, which is why I can't wear shorts here because I've got her face tatted right there on the back of my calf. Um, And then to get to be here for the Rescue Series, that just... I feel like I'm with my people. I feel like I'm with people who who failed keto after three days. It's just like I fit. I fit in this place. Um, I want to tell you just a quick story before we dive into God's Word this morning. My name is Lisa, and I am um, a woman who is desperate for divine rescue. And kind of by way of explaining that... I want to tell you something that happened just a few years ago when I was in college, back when the dinosaurs (laughs) walked the earth. I went to undergrad at a little bitty school in Alabama my last two years called Troy University. And I was a volleyball player back in the day. As a matter of fact, my father, my stepfather was a superintendent in the school system, but he was a smidge of a misogynist. And he said that girls shouldn't go to college because we only went to college to find husbands and then we never used our degrees. So he said I would be a bad investment. And so I knew I had to do something to earn a scholarship to school. And I was an okay jumper for a short pale girl. And so I turned to volleyball and by the grace of God, I got a volleyball scholarship at Troy university. And that was kind of a big deal, you know, pretty, pretty big deal. I was playing in a town of about, oh, I guess when school was in session, maybe there were 15,000 people in the town. And I got so good that my senior year, I was McDonald's player of the week, not not like all American McDonald's player of the week, but there were two McDonald's in Troy and (laughs) one of the McDonald's, I was player of the week at that McDonald's. So, they put up a Polaroid of me, and I got a supersized chicken nuggets meal. So, I mean, that, that was a pretty big deal. And so, I was feeling pretty good about myself as McDonald's Player of the Week. College volleyball player, we were Division II, by the way. I'm Division II AA, which means we probably could have competed with some of the smaller high schools here in Nashville. <laughs> and um, when I graduated from college, I worked with an athletic ministry. And the summer after I graduated, we had a camp with all these high high school kids. And this extremely sadistic coach decided to pair me, she'd gathered all these college volleyball players, decided to pair me directly across the net from an an Olympian a current Olympian. She was uh, an All-American through McDonald's, not Troy McDonald's, corporate McDonald's. She was a two-time All-American from University of Nebraska and was currently on the national team. And this coach just thought that'll be a kick to put the Troy girl across from the Olympian. And I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rise the occasion. I mean, I think I can do it. I've been working out all summer. I don't have a six pack, but I've got a pretty good keg going. I think I can do this. And so I line up across, and this Olympian, and y'all, she was just impressive. I mean, everything on her was cut. It was just, and this is before keto or paleo. She was just that way naturally. And, and so I got in my ready position, and I used to have decent legs. Don't look close now unless I'm wearing spanks, but I used to have de- decent springs, and I thought, I'm just gonna jump like I've never jumped before because I knew they were setting the ball to her because who wouldn't set a ball to a current Olympian? And there's about 300 high school kids watching, for some reason, this game was supposed to compel them to lean into Christ. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to do my part as a missionary for the gospel. And so when they set the ball to this Olympian, I, I, I squatted so low my fanny almost touched the court. And I felt myself, I thought every bit of athleticism in my body has, has just, all of it has come together for this one leap, just this one leap. It's all on me. I can do it. I know I can do it. And I sprung up like a cobra, y'all. I mean, just like a kind of a chunky pale cobra. Just, <laughs> I hung in the air. It's the highest I'd ever jumped. At higher than I ever jumped playing collegiate ball. My elbows got almost to the top of the net and I formed what in volleyball language we call a wall with my hands a wall with my hands. And I know this because I hung there, time stood still for what felt like 30 or 40 seconds. And, and I was, as I was hanging in the air, I saw the Olympian, she was left-handed and I watched her left arm just whip back almost like it was AI or something. It was just unbelievable. And then I could see the wind shift as it shot forward. And she connected with a Tasha Cara volleyball. I don't know how many of y'all played competition volleyball, but we play if it's in competition with a leather eight ounce Tashikara. It's made in Japan, not China. So it wasn't a blimp. It was just a ball. And, and they, um, they have these perfect, perfect leather balls. And in big black print, it says Tashikara across the front. And if you look real close, can you see it, sir? It's right on my forehead <laughs> right there. Cause the wall ended up becoming like a wet paper sack when she Threw her hand forward. That ball shot through my wall and it hit me so hard on the forehead that it knocked me all the way back on my side of the court, all the way back to my back. I slid. I didn't realize I slid because when my head hit the court, I went unconscious just for a second, just for a tiny second. And I woke up when the medics came running on the court to see if I was dead. And I woke up with them shining one of those little lights in my eyes. And when I woke up, here's what I heard one of these things is not like the other ones. Um, my friends who are watching the game said, Lisa, when she attacked that ball and knocked you over, it was like a rowboat went head to head with the Titanic. Just <laughs> boosh. when John and Paul called Jesus, the King of all Kings, they are not saying that in the context of human hierarchy. They are saying he is so altogether other, so superlative from any other ruler, any other governor, any other king, any other queen, any other president that we have ever experienced in human history. He is on a whole nother scale, whole nother league, even more so than that Olympian who crushed me. Even more so than her, because she normally competes against other Olympians. She doesn't normally compete against McDonald's Players of the Week from Troy, Alabama. She doesn't usually compete against people like me. She usually competes against people on her own world class level, not regular class like me. There is no class for Jesus. He is all together other. And I want us to just. Think about that for a second. It's too big for our human minds to comprehend. But in the context of rescue, it's imperative for us to at least begin to think about how far He condescended to rescue us. It's no small gap. We just sang the chasm that lies between us. There was a mountain I could not climb. Australian theologian John Nolan says this. He says, When you think of the king of all kings choosing to lay down his scepter in glory and shrug into a suit of, of skin and come all the way down to human depravity, when you think of him bridging that that the magnitude of that gap, he said, it's called the humility of the divine condescension. There's a gap between us and God that we can't possibly bridge. The dive he took to rescue us is unstinking believable, y'all. Speaking of deep dives and rescues, we're gonna play a clip of a real life rescue took place in 2010. One billion people Watch this on television. This will give you just a short chapter of when 33 miners in Chile were trapped 2,300 feet underground for 69 days. Over two months, these 33 men, now called the 33, were trapped a half mile underground. This is the day of their very real rescue. Next out was Mario Gomez, who dropped to his knees as a prayerful silence fell over the crowd. His wife pulled him to his feet for a hug. And also waiting was the eldest of his six brothers, Ronaldo. The emotion with him, he says, was endless. He said he thought he'd never see me again. By dawn there had been more than a dozen successful rescues, but each time they started to pull another man up from underground, hearts tightened and hopes lifted. That churning wheel at the top of the mine, a promise of progress, that siren, a song to the family members waiting. As the deepest rescue ever recorded. All 33 were rescued. Before they were rescued, a 19-year-old named Jimmy Sanchez sent a letter through the drilled air vent when he still thought that he would be in tomb, that he'd never see his family again. And 19-year-old Jimmy wrote this. There are actually 34 of us down here because God has never left us. Jose Hernandez, who he functioned as a lay pastor for those 33 men. He was a committed believer and he ended up writing a book called the miracle in the mine about their ordeal in which he observed God didn't need any doors to get down there in the middle of the mine where we were every time we called on his name he came he was there and he was present he went on to share how before they were rescued the Lord impressed him to share the gospel with these men who'd become like brothers with him, all assuming they would run out of air, all assuming that they would never make it back up to the surface. He felt compelled to give them an opportunity for true rescue, to be rescued by Jesus Christ. And 22 of those men gave their hearts to Christ. The very last thing the 33 did before the capsule got down to them was got on their knees and prayed and thanked God for rescuing them. There's something about the cognizance of the distance between where we are and where we need to be that leads to rejoicing. There's something about minding the gap, recognizing this is no small thing that the King of all Kings condescended all that way, a supernaturally steep descent. If you brought your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. If you didn't, find somebody who looks friendly around you. Mark chapter 10 tells the story of the two closest to Jesus. There were three Pete, James, and John, but James and John, the sons of Debbie, some sons of thunder, you'd think they would have known what it was to mine the gap because they spent three years with Jesus. Three years in Jesus' incarnate ministry. He's the king of all kings. He is transcendent, completely other, but because of compassion, he chooses to be imminent. He chooses to be close to us. And his in his incarnate ministry, he spent three years with this motley crew of disciples. And I wanna encourage those of you who feel like you're still pretty distant from God because these Yehus didn't get it either. We are not alone in our idiocy. And James and John, this is verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. And by the way, Do y'all remember who the gospel of Mark was written by? I'm not your pastor. You can talk back. This is not a trick question. Mark, the gospel according to Mark was written by Mark. Um, It's actually the very first gospel. We've got four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But chronologically, Mark was the very first gospel written. I don't know why they put it second when they canonized scripture. And do you remember who the narrative voice was of Mark's gospel? Because to be a gospel account, it was supposed to be an eyewitness account. And Mark wasn't among the original 12. So there had to be somebody else telling the stories while Mark was typing in. Some ancient coffee shop. Somebody else was walking back and forth, going, and then this is what happened. And then there was this leper, and then Jesus healed him, and then Jesus walked on water. We thought it was a ghost. Do y'all remember who the narrative voice was of Mark's gospel? Peter. Do y'all remember Peter? When I mean, you talk about somebody who needed to be rescued, that man was a train wreck. I mean, he was hot mess on a stick. And so you'll kind of get that Pete is honest about their inability to actually think right. They desperately needed some kind of spiritual depth gauge to recognize the disparity between them as sinners and the holiness of God, but they actually didn't get it until he was crucified and resurrected, even though they spent three years side by side. And James and John, Pete's telling the story, verse 35, the sons of Zebedee came up to him, came up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, teacher, which is nutty, they're calling him rabbi instead of Lord, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Do y'all see the audacity in that? This is right after Jesus has prophesied about Easter, about his own death for the third time. I mean, you talk about remedial. This is the third time Jesus has said, I'm just about to lay down my life for you. Cheryl wasn't playing when she said, you are worth it. That was the the common denominator of Jesus' message over and over and over again. You're worth it, you're worth it, you're worth it, you're worth it to me. He had just said, you're so worth it to me. I'm gonna climb up a hill called Golgotha and stretch up my arms and die for you. And they still didn't get it. These two fellows who'd been, been shoulder to shoulder with Jesus for three years, they say, we want you to be a vending machine. We want you to give us what we want And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one in your right hand and one in your left in your glory. In other words, Jesus, will you use some of your omniscience to give us numbers for Powerball? Jesus, will you use your authority to get us blue checks on social media? If I was there, I would have said, Jesus, will you give me tight skin and a high metabolism? And I'd like to wear those new high-waisted jeans and not look like a yahoo. Would you please do that for me? We tend to think in the context of our own humanity. We tend to think in hierarchy. If I just had this little nicer house, a little skinnier body, a husband who put the seat down. If I just had this... I'd have everything I want. Even though they called Jesus the king, they still thought when he actually steps on the throne, there will will still be human ramifications. There will still be a hierarchy. We, We still need to jockey for position, for power and for our preference. They still treated him like some kind of genie. If they just rubbed him right, they'd get what they wanted. It's not until the crucifixion That a very unlikely observer, not the disciples, a very unlikely observer actually recognizes the gap between us and our divine rescuer. Head over three or four pages to Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lima, Sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. This is to fulfill the prophecy, but it's so cruel. Just cruel mockery. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. So the centurion, if you've studied uh, first century history, the centurion was an enlisted man who had done so well in the military that he had risen to the ranks of officer. That was highly unlikely in this era. So he's Roman. He's not a Jew. He's Roman. His sole job that day, that very first Easter weekend, was to supervise the machinations of the murder of Jesus Christ. That's his job. As an officer, he's present there at Calvary just making sure every T is crossed and every I is dotted. He's just making sure the crucifixion goes according to Roman protocol. He's just there observing. As a military officer, he's seen all kinds of mess. If you study Greco-Roman history, you'll know during this period of Roman history, the Caesars, the rulers were megalomaniacs. They demanded emperor worship. They had desecrated the temple. They had put a statue of one of the Roman emperors in the temple. So when you came into the Jewish temple, you were supposed to bow down to a human emperor. Their coins during this time, the murder of Christ said, Tiberius Caesar son of the divine Augustus. Augustus was the first Roman emperor. They believed he was divine. They believed he was a God and said they believed that the transfer of his power to another human, all too human ruler was divine. So if you were a Roman, the only person you would call the son of God is the reigning Caesar. He had seen when the rulers of Rome would send the soldiers out to rape and to pillage, he had seen how they line their own pockets. He'd seen all of that. In his mind, ruler was equivalent with just crass, all kinds of profiteering. That's what he was used to. He's standing there, as best we know, impassively watching the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When Jesus breathes his last the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Do you remember how far the temple was from Golgotha? Do y'all remember that? Annie, you remember in Israel, you remember how far the, the Jerusalem, the temple complex is from Golgotha? Most historians will tell you it's, it's less than a mile, probably closer to half a mile. And Josephus will tell you that when that temple curtain tore in two, it was so loud, you could hear the rip all the way up where the crosses were. Because we tend to think of that curtain like restoration hardware, but it wasn't that kind of curtain. It was so much bigger than that. As a matter of fact, the measurements of the temple curtain are almost exactly the measurements of the flag that now flies over where the twin towers stood. It's enormous. Rabbinical tradition says that curtain was as thick as a man's hand. Do you remember the purpose of the curtain in the temple? Y'all can talk back. Those of y'all who filled in all your Bethmore Bible study blanks, now's the time to shine, baby. (laughs) Do y'all remember what the curtain stood for? Separates the holy holies. Exactly. Separates the holy of holies. And do y'all remember what that was? Some of y'all remember it from Harrison Ford movies. The Holy of Holies is this room in the temple in their church. It's this room where they had the Ark of the Covenant. You remember what the Ark of the Covenant is? Ark is the Hebrew word for box. We make it sound so fancy. It's a box. It was a fancy box. And inside that box, there were relics that proved... God's protection, God's provision, God's preference for his people, the Israelites. He said, I'm going to set my favor on this one people group, not because y'all are so special. Y'all are hot messes prone to wander, but I'm going to set my favor on you so that for the rest of history, people can look at you and me and go, oh, he's not a faraway God. Oh, he's a God who wants to be in relationship with his people. Prior to the one true God, they believed the ancients believed in gods, little g gods. They just believed this pantheon of little g gods was out to get them. They believed that if they didn't make the right sacrifices, if they didn't do the right things, those little g gods were gonna fry them into grease spots of oblivion. And so when the Israelites come in and there's a God who cares for them, there's a God who provides for them, there's a God who rains down barbecue potato chips as manna because he is not a keto God because Jesus called himself the bread of life. Uh, That's another sermon. But anyway, God from the beginning with the Israelites, it wasn't just because Israel is so special. It's because he wanted to show the kind of real relationship that he had with his people. God loves his people. He's always been about establishing relationship with his people. So the Ark of the Covenant held proof of that. There was a jar of manna. Y'all remember that in there? Aaron's budded staff. There were relics from those original Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, all in that wooden box. And so one day a year on Yom Kippur, that's the highest holy day still in the Jewish calendar, the high priest of Israel, just one man, would go into the Holy of Holies. Tradition tells us he would wear a rope on his ankle that had bells on it. Why is that? Y'all talk back. That's right, it's a sp- scary thing to go into the Holy of Holies. They believe that's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. And if you go in there and, with sin in your heart, they knew they'd be fried. And so he went in there and they thought, well, just in case he's a sinner and we don't know it, maybe he's been doing trashy stuff on his iPad. When he dies in there, I'm not gonna go in there. We'll just drag him out by the rope. And so this one day a year, the high priest of Israel is able to go past the curtain. Just one day a year. I've been in Israel twice on Yom Kippur, the day of Yom Kippur. And Israelites still say one prayer. And in Hebrew, it's translated, may I be inscribed with a good inscription. In other words, may all the stuff I've done the last 364 days, may that be forgotten and may I today be inscribed with a good inscription. Will God please accept me today even though I've been a stinker prone to wander all the rest of the year? Y'all, I can't even remember all the sins I've committed this morning I can't imagine the insecurity of hoping one day, one man I've never even met, not even friends on Facebook, will pray so effectively that all my sins are forgiven. But that was tradition. And so when Jesus breathes his last breath, the curtain, what separated us, regular people who are sinners, what separated us in the the pit from the forgiveness of God, that curtain is torn in two. And Mark tells us it's torn from top to bottom. I love that little caveat because I think that implies God did the ripping, just top to bottom. And it was so loud because it was so big and it was so thick that they say people all over heard the rip. In Acts, we're told that the priests who were standing right in front of the temple going around about priestly stuff, they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. So they hadn't walked up Golgotha to watch him be crucified. They're still there burning candles, you know, sacrificing things presiding over the butcher, butchering of animals that are gonna be sacrificed. They're just just going about religious business and that huge curtain behind them ripped and it says, many came to faith in Christ. I'm like, I'll bet they did. That card, shazam! The centurion, he hears the rip. He watches Jesus die. He's Roman. He's never seen Jesus walk on water. He's never seen Jesus hug a leper while the leper was still filthy with leprosy. He's never seen Jesus spit in a handful of mud and rubbing on a blind man's eyes so that he could see. He hasn't seen any of the miracles. He wasn't there for any of the worship. All he's seen is Jesus suffer. And when he breathed his last breath, The centurion recognized the gap. The centurion of all people said, surely that right there is the son of God. That right there, that man is infinitely more significant, more powerful than a Caesar. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. Since that day, Christianity is the only belief system that puts our faith in a ruler who condescends to suffer so that we don't have to anymore. That's the divine rescue, y'all. We are in pits that are way too deep for us to crawl out by ourselves. And the king of all kings willingly lays down his scepter in glory, knowing that means that he'll shrug into a suit of skin It means he'll pick up a wet towel and wash our nasty feet. And it means ultimately he will walk up a hill and be murdered on our behalf. He loves us so much he'd rather die than be without us. That's an incredible rescuer who'll go that deep and that dark so that we can get out of the hole that we've created ourselves. Darkest season in my life was when I thought I was going to lose my little girl. Became a mom through the miracle of adoption in 2014. But in 2013, I got the dreaded phone call that told me that after a year and a half in the adoption process, it looked like I wasn't going to get Missy. That Haitian law was changing and they were sorry, but they had lost some of my paperwork. And so they said, Lisa, we're sorry, but it looks like you're not going to get to bring Missy home after all. Uh, My little girl's first mother had died when she was two years old. There was no one else to care for her, no one else to advocate for her. She was very, very sick. And when I got that phone call, I thought, you know, I'm in the middle of menopause, so I'm hot all the time anyway. I'm just going to go to Haiti. And I'm just going to go to Haiti for as long as it takes because by then she was my kid. I'm like, whatever it takes, I'm just going to go and get my daughter. And if I have to live in Haiti, I'll live in Haiti. And so I went to Haiti for the umpteenth time by myself. And I got to her orphanage, which is in a very, very dangerous area. It's now completely ruled by gangs. And there's walls around her orphanage with razor wire at the top, not to keep the kids in, but to keep the the dangerous people out. And I came driving up to the front of the orphanage, and there were two fellows with machine guns on either side of the gates. And I looked at both of them, they're about 90 pounds soaking wet. And I thought I can take them. (laughs) And I walked past, I mean, honestly, my personality was kind of like, shoot me. You're not going to keep me from my kid. And I walked down to where all the peanuts were, 62 kids, four caregivers tiny little place, about 1400 square feet, one non-working bathroom for 62. Beautiful kids. I just squalid conditions. And I get down there and the caregivers didn't speak English. and My Creole is pretty abysmal. So I just start sorting through heads, trying to find Missy. By then I knew the shape of her head. I knew everything about my kid. By that point, I just start sorting through heads and I can't find Missy. And I started to panic because if you know anything about human trafficking, you know that little girls in third world countries who are orphaned are usually the first to be sold or trafficked. And I just started to panic because I thought somebody has bought my little girl. Somebody has traded Missy for a meal or something. And I was begging the nannies to tell me where she was and they wouldn't tell me. Found out later they hated me, uh, not just because I came from a first world country, but because my little girl has HIV. And the nannies didn't have the luxury of an education and they thought if they touched Missy, they would get HIV and then they would die and who would take care of their kids. And so they were furious that she had been led into the orphanage. She was the last, very last child, first and last uh, with HIV admitted to this orphanage. So they wouldn't help me and i just start panicking. And as I'm panicking, trying to find Missy, I got distracted because from about me to the soundboard over there, I recognized there was movement under the stairway. Now this is a, I mean, this is filthier than any basement you've ever been in. Under the stairs, you wouldn't keep your lawnmower over there. I saw movement and I assumed it was a dog. And in that part of Haiti, you don't have pet dogs. They're rabid dogs, and they're really, really dangerous. Most people don't have enough money to feed themselves, much less pets. And so I just instinctively moved toward the dog because I thought, I've got to keep this rabid dog away from these 62 pumpkins. And as I began moving toward the dog, as I got a little closer, I thought, "That's, that's not a dog there in the dark under the stairwell. That's a kid. And then as I got a little closer, I thought, that's not just a kid. That's my kid. That's that's Missy there under the stairs. And so I started running. As I was running toward her, I could see that she was just staring at the wet concrete in front of her, just wearing a diaper, even though by then she'd been potty trained for two years, but the nannies didn't want to touch her, so they wouldn't put her in a uniform. Her beautiful curly hair hadn't been tended to. I was running toward her and I realized if I come and grab her, it's gonna alarm her. At that point, I hadn't seen her in three months. So I stopped just short of her and I got down on my knees and I said, hey baby, it's Mama Blanc, white mama. It's Mama Blanc, it's Mama Blanc. And Missy just stared at the concrete. She didn't even look up. And I can't even tell you what was going through my mind. I was just scared to death. I remember the articles I'd read about kids who've been abandoned in orphanages. how oftentimes they lose their mind, they're institutionalized. And I thought, I've lost, I've lost my baby. And I said, Missy, it's Mama Blanc. It's Mama Blanc. And it took probably two or three minutes for her to finally look up. And when she looked up, you know, I was backlit. The sun was behind me, she was in the dark. It took her a second to recognize me. And I saw that kind of flood of recognition across her little face. And she didn't say anything. She just went like this. And I picked her up when I found out a few hours later that she hadn't been held since the last time I'd been there in three months. I wouldn't set her down. She was either on my hip, on my shoulder, asleep in my arms the whole rest of the time I was there. She's 13 years old now, healthy as a horse. So much cuter than your pale kids. But if Missy... (laughs) I'm teasing, kind of. Um, If Missy to this day reaches her arms up, I will still try to pick her up. And I hope you get hives if you judge me for that. I love my kid more than I knew I had the capacity to love. I would go anywhere for my kid. And my love for my daughter pales next to Jesus' love for us. Do you recognize, do you recognize the gap he has bridged to say, I love that man? I love that man, that's my son. Oh, I'll climb any mountain. I'll descend into any cave, that's my daughter. She doesn't recognize her worth yet, but that's my girl. Can I ask God to bow your heads and close your eyes? I know I'm a guest in your house and I haven't earned the right to ask any real personal questions, but I'm going to go there anyway. I've already proved I don't have protocol in church. If you feel like you are a long way from Jesus, maybe you feel spiritually like those men in the mine. You're a half a mile away from fresh air. A half a mile away from life. Maybe you've tried prayer, but it feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. I'm the only one with my eyes open right now. I want to ask you to just slip up your right or your left hand. not going to embarrass you or manipulate you. Just raise your hand if you feel like you're a long way from rescue, a long way from Jesus. Hi, beautiful. Hello. I see you. I see you. Jesus has already bridged the gap for you. He thinks you are worth it. And he would rather die than be separated from you. I'm going to ask all of us to pray with the hosts who are going to come up on the different campuses. And before they come up, I want to pray for those of y'all um, our friends at God Behind Bars and those of you who are leaning in online, hopefully in stretchy pants with coffee. Um, I just want to pray with you and for you. And I want to ask those of y'all um, in these rooms to just pray along as we, as we acknowledge how far we are from God and how grateful we are that he bridged the gap For those of you who are already in Christ, you already have a relationship with Jesus, I pray that in these next few moments, you remember the miracle of your own rescue. The breath in your lungs is because of his compassionate condescension. Jesus, 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 just like Peter, I'm a mess. I can't make it by myself. I can't rescue myself. I'm a sinner. I've done things that separate me from you, Jesus. And I can't climb out of this hole. And Jesus, other people have done things to me that have just broken my heart. So I need your forgiveness and I need your healing. I need to be rescued and I need to be restored. And I'm believing in this moment that you are my only hope. You're my living hope. You're the one who loves me so much that you left your throne in glory. To come and shrug into a suit of skin and live a perfect life. And eventually to lay down that life in exchange for mine. So Jesus, I put my hope in you right now. I don't understand it all. But right now I'm telling you that I'm giving you all of my hope. I'm putting my trust in you and in you alone to rescue me. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for bridging the gap that I couldn't bridge. Thank you for seeing me as worthy on my worst day. Help me to rest in your affection, King Jesus. Amen and amen.